Um, James, chapter 1. I want to read a portion of what we looked at last week, and we're at the end of uh, this chapter, and it will pick up now substantially as we go through the rest of the book, but I think it's been necessary for us to slow down and to try and absorb what it is that James is laying out for us before he um, unpacks these things in the last uh, four chapters of the book. Starting at verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Father, I thank you that we can come before your word today. And I do pray that as we gather around your word, there would be a desire in all of us that you would incline our hearts to receive your word. There are so many things that go in our hearts that Um, make us resistant or opposed or hard towards it. Would you incline our hearts to your word this morning? Would you open our eyes to see Christ in your word today? That in all of things that James is saying behind them, sort of in the default um, operating system, there is an emphasis on Christ. Would you unite our hearts to fear you? Would you bring unity in our hearts towards your word, such that as we um, are made aware of what you want us to know, that we would say, yes, I want to walk in that way. Would you satisfy us with your word today, I pray? Would this be enough? Would we not tell ourselves, well, there's got to be more somewhere else. There's got to be another book. There's got to be something else I can do. Would Would you show us that your word is sufficient, that your ways are enough? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a number of sayings in our culture that uh, identify the likeness of children with fathers and mothers. Um, So one of the sayings we might say from time to time is the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Just a way of saying the apple comes from usually the tree that it's closest to. We have other sayings that would be like father like son. And that's simply a way of saying you you can see family resemblances in mannerisms, in words, in the way you carry yourself physically. It's amazing that if you know a family well enough and you've watched their children, sometimes the way their little boy walks or the way their their little girl um, carries herself, that's her mother's daughter or that's the father's son. There's a resemblance that comes with it. James has been revealing to us a little bit of our Heavenly Father along the way as we get to here. He talked to us a little bit about his um, character and he says our Father is good. Every good and perfect gift comes down from a Father above. That tells us something about our Father's character. He's good. He's good all the time. All that he does is good. But he also told us something about our Father's nature. He is unchanging. 
Uh, one of the things that we said to our children or said to ourselves as we were raising our kids and just remind ourselves now, say what you mean and mean what you say. Uh, it's really important to be consistent and to not shift and to change. Well, that's true of our Father. He's perfect in that way. There is no shadow of turning in Him. He will not be one thing one day and another thing the next day. Circumstances don't affect Him. And so by His very nature, He is unchanging, which is a wonderful um, uh, part of our Heavenly Father. But James also tells us something about our Father's work in us. He talks about how the fact that, that He has given us new life. We spoke about it a number of weeks ago, that by His will or according to His will, and according to the Word of God, He has done this incredible work of um, new creation in us. He has made us new. We who were dead in our sins and our trespasses, He has made us new by the power of His world. Just as He spoke this world into being, let there be light, and there was light. He looked at Paul's life one day, and he said, let there be life, and there was new life in me. And to sort of drill this into the receivers the readers ears he says know this know this about your father know this about his nature know this about his character know this about his work um, think it through wrestle it through in your heart and life so it's a summons to come to grips with who we would call our heavenly father so one of the questions that I just want to throw out to you and let you think about throughout uh, well hope not through the rest of the sermon but sometime through the day or through this week is is this what should my life look like if it is a reflection of my heavenly father if I am an apple that has fallen from the tree of my father what should I taste like what should I look like what characteristics should be growing and developing in my life James has been working around the contours of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ that's what chapter 1 is really, um, one of the key aspects of it is it's revealing genuine Christian faith. It's one thing to profess to be a follower of God through Christ. It's another thing to live that life before him. And so he's been showing us how we have been born again, but what does that new life look like that develops out of that new birth? In physical uh, settings, um, those of you who are parents are, are well aware of this. You have a baby and... Um, one of the things that happens is there are regular checkups with the doctor for a period of time. And one of the thrilling moments for most parents is when you go to the doctor and then you come home to your wife or uh, to your husband and you say, well, um, Paul is in the 95th percentile for weight. You go, yeah, uh, I wish there was five more percent. But there's a percentile for weight. There's a percentile for height. There's a percentile for looks. I got 100% in that one. <laughs> But there was ways in which you measured the growth of your infant. There was new life. And you would be concerned if there was no growth, if there was no development, if there was no um, evidence of new life in that child. In the same way, when it comes to spiritual life, there ought to be new life that is reflective of, or growth that is reflective of new life in, uh, in, in our lives. And so... Peter writes this way, he says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Why? That by it you might grow in salvation. There's a maturing that takes place. There's a growth that takes place in our hearts, in our lives. And so at the heart of this process of spiritual growth, the, 
the, the, the way in which we grow spiritually is through the Word of God and the application of the Word of God to our lives by the Spirit of God and our obedience to the Word of God. And so James has spent some time talking about that. He says, now you've been born again. You have to, have a, you have to hear the Word of God. You, you have to receive the Word of God with a, with a heart that's not resistant, a heart that's not rebellious towards it. And then you have to, what? Be a doer of the Word. And it's a response to the Word of God that begins to stimulate growth that is consistent with the new life that is ours through Christ Jesus. Flowing out of these things, then, of this new birth and the Word of God, James opens up three characteristics, three ways that we can look at ourselves and say, ah, oh, I'm a child of the Father. And he says, well, these are the three ways, a controlled tongue, a caring response to the vulnerable, and a commitment to personal holiness. That is what our Father is like. Every word of God is measured. Every word of God is pure and perfect. We are the recipients of God's loving care to the vulnerable, to the despised. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. And God selflessly, because of his great love, stepped towards us and visited us and cared for us. And God is a holy God, and he says, Be holy, for I am holy. These three things are, are not all that um, the Scripture says reveal characteristics of the Father. There are many more, but these are just three sort of sample ones that James gives to us to demonstrate this reality that we ought to reflect our Father. And it's certainly more than this, but it's not less than these. It's not like you can pick and choose the characteristics that you want. So James says these, at the very least, are three characteristics of the children of God. There's two words that James uses that I, I think we need to just pull away from for a moment and think about. The first word is religion, and the second word is deception. Religion and deception. The word religion for many people is a, a scary word. It almost sets off in many of us our spidey senses, our spiritual spidey senses when we hear this word religion. Um, James uses the adjective for religion in verse 26 and it's no, used nowhere else in the Bible. And then he uses the noun for religion in verse 27 and it's used in only two other places in the Bible. But there's a world of um, learning that needs to filter into our hearts and minds as we wrestle with this word and this concept of religion. In the first instance, James uses it in the negative sense. He says, if this is your religion, then it's useless. And what he's talking about is religion is the outward expression of our worship, of our honor, of our obedience to, uh, to the thing that we worship. And so in this instance, James is is demonstrating a religion that is worship, a worthless, an outward expression of worship that is worthless. It's a religion that is external only. It's show, it's outward. We might say it's even ceremonial. For instance, I know some people who only come to church when we do the Lord's table. It's a religious experience for them. 
there's nothing in it that, uh, that reflects a changed heart. It's just the, the discipline or the outward show of coming together with the people of God and participating at the Lord's table. There are others who, who, who are involved in all kinds of religious activities which have no connection with their heart. The external worship has no reflection of the internal nature or reality of their heart. We consider the Pharisees, for example. Jesus spoke a lot about the Pharisees. The Lord said to this individual, Now, you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You see, it's possible to be externally wonderful and upright and clean and all put together and internally just be a mess. Jesus, when he's summarizing this, uh, a whole um, variety of ways in which one is religious without their heart being changed, he says, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others. See, that's, that's negative religion, outwardly repairing righteousness to others, outwardly reflecting a kind of lifestyle or an attitude that doesn't reflect our heart. But others look at you and say, wow, they must be pretty good people. But he says, so you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, Jesus was telling the Pharisees, you are religious, but your father is the devil. Paul makes this same point about religion and religious practice in Colossians, where there he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? That's, religion also often leads to legalism. And so he said, regulations, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. These indeed have the appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity of the body. In order they look good, they look like you're dealing with the issues in your heart. But he says, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That is negative religion. That is religion that is of no use. It's all show. It's all um, ceremonial. It's all external. It's all for other people to see, but there's no connection with your outward activities and your, the state of your heart. Professing religion, James says, and having a tongue that is out of control is a great deception. In fact, religion can be a great deception. You see, James says there um, that uh, in verse 27, though, that religion can also be a good thing. Because he says, religion that is pure and undefiled. So there is religion that is negative and worthless, and then there is worship, religion, external um, behavior that is pure and undefiled. It's what God wants. It's what God calls us to. It's a lifestyle and actions that are a true reflection of our Father's heart that is being, is being um, uh, reflected in our own living. It's almost a good religion or true religion is almost synonymous with godliness. Godliness is a wonderful trait that we as believers are, are, to, are, are, are to embrace. So the first word is religion. We need to think it through. We need to ask ourselves, is my worship, are the external things I do for the benefit of others, for the benefit of my pride, or do they really reflect a heart that has been transformed 
by the power of the word of God. The second word that I want us to just think about for a moment before we dive into the text is deception. James uses it here, and I'll show the other places you use it, but he says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart. One of the things that um, we find biblical writers encouraging again and again is to guard against deception. Uh, and so, for instance, Paul would say in Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. It need not be a troubling thing. It need not shake us to the core. It should simply be, wow, I got to do this. Because, and why? Because my heart is deceptive. Uh, the, the proverb writer, the Proverbs in chapter 4, verse 23 says, Above all, guard your heart. James says, The heart is desperately wicked and deceptive. Who can understand it? And so, deception is something that we need to think about. Self-deception is something that we need to be aware of. And there's two books in the Bible that are written really to help us address this and to search our hearts about it. One is the book of James. And we'll see how he does that. The other is the book of 1 John. 1 John is a book that is written, so it's written for self-examination. And they, they lay out for us marks of genuine faith or ways that we can examine ourselves. So, for instance, the, John says, this is why I've written this book. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. See, one of the things that we struggle with as Christians is assurance. And we all do from time to time. This, this confidence that we are God's children and he is our father. And so James writes a whole book, five chapters, on various ways that we can be assured that we know God. And so, for instance, one of the things that he says, he says, And this we know that we have come to know him. By this we know that we have come to know him. So we say, okay, here is a test of self-examination. If we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. One of the ways we examine ourselves is just, Father, is my heart's desire and my, my, my focus on obedience. It's not asking for perfect obedience. It's the trajectory of my life. James says it so succinctly in verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And so James uses this word deception three times. In verse 16, speaking of temptation, he says, don't be deceived. How do we deceive ourselves with temptation? Well, we deceive ourselves about the strength of temptation. We deceive ourselves about the origin of temptation. We deceive ourselves about the result of giving in to temptation. James is absolutely clear. He says, temptation, if given into, will lead to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, leads to death. Don't deceive yourself. The path of sin is the path of death. He uses it again in verse 22, as we've already considered. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. There's multiple ways in which we deceive ourselves and say, well, I really don't need to do this. I've, I've heard 15 sermons. I listened to three podcasts. I've read my Bible this week. I'm good. You think of this with Saul. 
when Saul disobeyed the, the prophet Samuel and Samuel finally comes to him and challenges him in his disobedience and his final sort of word to Saul is to obey is better than sacrifice um, and then in verse 26 if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart James is concerned about deception and he's so concerned that you wouldn't be reflected in your English Bibles or English Bibles, but it is in a Greek Bible. He uses three different words, distinct words, to talk about deception. The Greek language was like other language. In various ways, it had more vocabulary to deal with a concept than the English language does. And so, for instance, in verse 16, the word that he uses there is a word that has the meaning of being led astray or caused to wrong or, or caused to wander or go down a wrong path so for instance it's it's used in first um, uh, Corinthians where it says there that uh, do not be deceived bad company corrupts good morals don't kid yourself the people that you hang around with will influence you but we deceive ourselves no I can handle this I'm a I, I, I got to handle it myself in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the same word is used there where it says, don't be deceived about how you get into the kingdom of heaven. The second instance the word is used, it's used to describe being tricked or being deluded. A different nuance. So Jacob was tricked when his father-in-law Laban gave him Leah instead of Rachel on his wedding night. He was deceived. It's the word that's used of Joshua when uh, the Gibeonites came and they they lied about who they were and where they had come from and they deceived Joshua and the Israelites into making a covenant with them they tricked them it's the same word that's used when when um, Saul disguises himself and he goes to see a medium and he was supposed to have killed all the mediums in the land and so she was worried that oh Saul's just deceived himself to find out about me so he can kill me so she felt that he was deceiving him or trying to deceive him and so that's another way in which James wants us to think about deception, by being tricked, by letting our guard down. And then the third word that's used carries the notion of deliberate self-deception. When we know better, we just choose to walk into that deception. It's the word that's used in Genesis chapter 3 to talk about Eve being deceived by the serpent. She knew better. She just walked into the deception and allowed herself to be self-deceived. Samson was deceived by Delilah. He knew what he was doing. He just walked into it. Ahab was the one who had, remember he had the 400 prophets all beating drums and saying, Ahab, go to war, you're going to be victorious. And uh, Elijah had said to him, listen, the reason that's happening, Ahab, is because there is a lying spirit that has been sent to deceive your prophets. And he just ignored that and went to battle anyhow and died. And so there is self-deception. And, and so James is really concerned that we be those that aren't taken by deception. And this is what he says then. He says, if anyone thinks, this is the path to deception. It's really self-thinking. It's a subjective standard. If anyone thinks he is religious, well, I've got my own measure of religion. I've got my own measure of what it means to be a child of God. I've got my own standard of righteousness. 
You see, we don't determine the standard. God does. And, and the, the measure for our life, James is saying, is the word of God. It's not a self-measure. There's not a measure for every person. The measure is God's standard, which is found in God's word. And that is how we protect ourselves from being deceived. We hear it. We receive it. We do it. And so James wants us to be aware of religion, and he wants us to be aware of deception. And so then he goes into three things that reveal characteristics of God in us. The first is simply a controlled tongue. You ever think, James could have picked a whole lot of things, but he picks the tongue. He's making a connection between our tongue and our heart. He's saying there is a connection between regeneration and speech. And if you think it doesn't matter how you speak and what you say, then there is evidence that there's not been a change in your heart. You're deceiving yourself. You're telling yourself things that aren't true about your heart. You see, the tongue and the heart are so linked that the tongue is an accurate index of the core of who we are. Jesus said to a group of, uh, uh, of, of Pharisees, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Do you know that? That when you lose your temper or when you're relaxed or when you speak without thinking and words come out of your mouth, that's what's in your heart. It's, it's our heart that is reflected in our words. And so James says there, there can't be a disconnect between that. You, you can't have a filthy tongue. You can't have a dirty tongue. You can't have an abusive tongue. And have a heart that reflects the Father's heart. See, worship is an internal reality. And it's accurately revealed in a verbal reality. If anyone appears to be religious but can't control his tongue, he deceives himself. I don't know if you've thought about the tongue a lot. We'll come to this later, so I'll just light on it really briefly. But the tongue is an instrument of life and death. The book of Proverbs tells us that again. That one with a, a harsh tongue is like stabs of a knife. I think that's where we get the phrase backstabbing from. Ever been hurt by somebody's words? It's like a knife going into your heart. But the words of the wise bring life. Another proverb says, In the power of the tongue is the power of life and death. That's how powerful our, our speech can be. Tongue is an instrument of true worship or hypocrisy. Uh, Jesus speaks to, again, a group of Pharisees. He says, For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their far heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. There it is, vanity and worship. See, we can say things that sound wonderful. We've all been singing these great hymns. I don't know if you've listened to the words that we sang today. Beautiful truths. But what's in our hearts? Does it reflect the joy and the love and the regeneration that's taking place in our heart? How you speak with your spouse, your children, your parents, your employees, these, these reveal your heart. 
And so a controlled tongue, James says, betrays the new life that you profess. The second is a caring concern for the vulnerable. In a most profound way, you and I are recipients of God's care for the most vulnerable. Sometimes we are so full of arrogance and pride that we, we don't see how destitute we were when God came after us and found us, how he cleaned us up, how he washed us. We are the recipients of an incredible love of our Heavenly Father. And so James is saying that that same love should be reciprocated to others around us that are vulnerable and in need. See, the heart of our Father is for the disenfranchised. It's for the sojourner. It's for the alien. It's for the widow. It's for the orphan. It's for those who can't provide for themselves. Those who, because of circumstances of life, have been left destitute. A husband dies. A parents die. Uh, you're, you're taken from your country that you lived in. Your country is taken and you flee it. And throughout the Old Testament, we see God again and again saying to the people of Israel, you've got to look after them. You've got to care for the orphans. You've got to care for the widows. You've got to care for the destitute. You've got to care for the sojourner. We go into the New Testament. We find this again woven through the New Testament. Again, John. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's a, that's a wrenching illustration little children and this is a reflection of James little children let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him it's very easy for me to 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 speak wonderful things to dress the part and yet to ignore the vulnerable that are in our own community. The vulnerable that are in our world. It says, pure and undefiled religion is to visit the orphans and widows in their distress. What's James saying? He says, we ought to be characterized by love, by compassion. What's the summary of the second part of the law? To love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor, who's your neighbor? Your neighbor is anybody else that's a human being. So the second test is, do I have a heart for the helpless, the homeless, the dislocated in my world? Certainly the fatherless and the widows are not the only ones who are vulnerable and in need of help. Societies change over time. Could be a different situation in Oceanside, and I could give a list, but you know who the vulnerable are in our community. You know who the vulnerable of our world today are. How do we respond to those in distress? And then thirdly, a commitment to holiness. What he's saying here is they're all challenging. But he, he says the one that reflects the Father's heart that is more and more growing in this new life that has been implanted in us, more and more distances themselves from the world. What do we mean by that when we say the world? Well, 
The world is a common way of referring to life outside of God, life with no orientation towards God, life even, if you would put it, as opposed to God. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time here because we'll come back to it, but James says, I believe it's James who says, you cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God. If you are a friend of the world, you are an enemy of God. Can't sit on the fence here, James is saying. And so our relationship with the world is an indication of our relationship with our Heavenly Father or our lack of relationship with our Heavenly Father. See, we live in the world, right? And in fact, Jesus prays, and I, I still wrestle with this from time to time, Father, don't take them out of the world. Yes, I want to get out of this place. But keep them from the evil one. And we're to be salt and light. And we're to abstain from the fleshly lust which wage war against our soul so that we might be a light to the world and they might see our good deeds and glorify God. And so we have a relationship with the world. We work alongside of people in the world. We, we buy the world's get, goods. We live in houses that are temporary. We have clothes that will be mothied. And so there is an interaction that we have with the world. But James says here, don't be stained by it. Don't be polluted by it. Don't, don't let the, the rivers of the world flow through your soul or your heart, so to speak. The river of materialism, where our hope is put in money and in our retirement or the loves of things, where the attitudes of the world towards the poor, towards God, or what we should pursue or what we should hope for dominate us, or the behaviors of the world begin to transform our life rather than behaviors of the world of God transform our life, the Word of God. So James calls us to examine our relationship with the world. See, this world is not our home. It's so hard, though, is it not, to, to, to embrace that reality? It's so hard for us to, to realize that I'm just passing through, that I'm an alien, that I'm a stranger, that possessions and stuff shouldn't matter. I know how hard it is. James says, really, he says, you've got to keep your sights on the kingdom that is coming. You've got to live in the world, but don't let it stain you. Don't let it leave its mark on you. So the third test James puts forward is, what is the influence of the world on my life? I think one of the things, that there's lots of things that I'm worried that I'm being misunderstood this morning. One of the things I would say that for you who are a follower of Christ, and we'll, I'll say a little bit more about this thing, don't, don't beat yourself up. You know, because the last thing we want to do is fall into the trap of legalism and religion because we've heard James, or despair. Part of it is just allow the Word of God to transform you. Like, don't fight it. Don't resist it. Receive it humbly. Do it. Just, just obey it. And, and you will find this natural sort of transition, this natural change taking place in you where a, a year from now or two years from now, you think, man, I don't look at that person the same way I did two years ago. I would have never done that for that person two years ago. Or man, I'm amazed at how my speech has changed. So there's something in me that just, just allow the word of God to do its work in you. And I think part of this is a word that, at least it drove me to repentance this week as I was just working it through in my own heart. I am convicted by my words. My job is words. My calling is words. 
I can be a hypocrite. I can say things that aren't true of my heart. I can speak unkindly to my wife. And so often I find that my words do betray the likeness and the image that I know is stamped inside of me. And so it's just a call to repentance, Paul. Let the word of God transform you. Let the life of God be reflected in your speech. I know how hard I can be to the homeless, you know. We've got our issue in our own, our own backyard. We've got people that are on the sides of the roads. We've got people that we don't know about. We drive by people. We know what we think of refugees. And sometimes I'm ashamed at what I think. And Paul, that's not right. Father, may your likeness dominate my thinking. I'm sorry for those times when I react with hatred or prejudice or pride. And then the world, good grief. It's all around us, isn't it? It's so easy to to find ourselves streaming, swimming downstream rather than upstream. Father, forgive me. Wash me. So it's as much a call to repentance as it is to anything else. As we come to this wrapping it up in your own heart and head, as I've already said, there's, there's sort of two dangers as we walk down this path of obedience to God. There could be more, but one of them is to fall off on this side, which I would call the side of legalism in religion. And to hear James and say, I got to pull up my socks. I got I to be more careful with my speech. I got to be more careful with my ad. I'm going to help the next poor person I see. I'm going to give them some money. I'm going to give them some vouchers or I'm going to send some money. And we, we deceive ourselves into thinking that our outward actions are what James is getting at. He's not getting at that. What James wants us to see is our heart should be reflected in those. So don't fall off the path on the one side and, and make a stronger commitment to religion and legalism. If you do that, I failed you this morning. But on the other side, don't fall off on the side of despair and say, oh, you, you don't know the things I said this week. You don't know the, 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 the way the world squoze me, <laughs> squeezed me into its mold this week. You, you don't know what I fought this week. I can't do it anymore. I'm, I can't do it. And I would agree with you, you can't. See, the path to true religion is through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who has spoken perfectly. Jesus is the one who has loved perfectly. Jesus is the one who has walked in this world perfectly. Jesus is the one in whom my life is hidden. Jesus is the one who is my righteousness. Jesus is the one who is my strength. Jesus is my big brother who holds my hand and walks with me. Call out to Jesus and say, Jesus, help me. Jesus, thank you for what you accomplished. Let me find my strength in you because it's no longer I who lives, but it's you who lives in me. Cry out to your father this week. Say, Father, I want your likeness to be more evident in my life. 
I want to be more like you. A thing as potent as the new birth, if it has taken place, cannot be hidden. It cannot fail to make its presence felt. To have the life of God in us and to remain unchanged is unthinkable. You need to be reminded God is real. And because he's real, that changes everything. Father, we come before you today. And uh, I thank you for James and for the way that you spoke through him so many hundreds of years ago and how you speak, speak through him today. I pray, Father, that in all of us here who are your children today, that our lives would be increasingly marked by religion that is pure and undefiled. And that more and more people would look at us and say, she's her father's daughter. He's her father's son or his father's son. May your likeness and your image be more and more evident in our speech, in our love, in our relationship with the world. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.